Hello, loves. Welcome back to episode two of the Sacred Witch podcast. I am your host, Satara Durash Kaviani. And yeah, today is going to be a little bit of a rewind. So in the last episode, I talked about my rebirth, a quite literal birth of my second son and everything that came to be in this resurrection of sorts. And this episode is less feel good and more feeling. So in order to really understand the depths of the despair that I found myself in prior to that rebirth, I think it's necessary to explore my orientation around just life in general. And I mentioned in the last episode about the dream that I had, the recurring dream starting at when I was around six years old, and a dream that continued for decades, actually until the birth of my first son about 20 years after the first time I had the dream. And that dream really set the stage, I believe, for the inevitability of this rooted victim mentality in my life, in my very existence. I lived it, I breathed it, I was it. And I felt the little pangs of it starting in early childhood, but it wasn't really until I was about nine or 10 years old that I believe it rooted in a way that made it much more difficult to contend with. And that's when life just became unbearable. I remember the first time I decided that life was just too much. I didn't want to participate anymore. I didn't want to experience anymore. I was about 10 years old. And I believed that if I could just stop living, put myself out of my misery, that all this pain, all the confusion, everything would go away. And obviously it didn't work because I'm here having this conversation with you. But that was the first of many, many times, countless really times when I came to that conclusion that life is too much, too much suffering, too difficult to to everything. And I fell apart. And it wasn't an instantaneous dissembling. It was really over time. 
and in little pieces and fractals that I noticed initially, but some of which were so seemingly insignificant that I really didn't pay them much attention at all. And I continued to just spiral in this way. By the time I was 11, I had discovered that harming myself in ways that I could contend with, um, whether physically through cuts on my arms or physically through restricting food, um, basically anything that I could find and control, which would alleviate this just screaming voice in my head of how I was a failure, how I wasn't supposed to be here. And for anyone who's ever experienced this or who's listening and is just horrified, I can tell you this is an intentional summary and really sugarcoating of what this experience was like, because it's truly not words. If I wanted to sit here today and explain in writing or in my verbal words how this experience was, what the feeling was, I would go right back to that place. There's so much power in those words. There's so much power in those sensations that we start to believe that they are truth. And in my ongoing desperate battle for control, I started to get angry that I didn't have it. I quickly learned over the course of the next several years that regardless of how much I tried to control as an individual with just me, my mind and my body, I couldn't shut down this nagging feeling of everything being wrong. And I could be having arguably one of the best days of my life, you know, a birthday or Christmas morning or just a freshly baked strawberry rhubarb pie with vanilla ice cream on top. Nothing was enough to give me more than temporary vanishing relief from this aching desperation of wanting everything to just stop. And when I was about 15, 14 really, I realized that maybe other people were the key here. Maybe men were the key here to help me change how I felt or to help me just not feel at all. And there were moments before this when I believed that could be a reality, but that's not something that we're going to get into today. 
And so when I started seeking out other people, other men to change how I felt, there was this instantaneous realization of not only being too much, because I constantly felt like I was just too much. Now there was this additional concurrent reality of not being enough. I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't blonde enough. I wasn't skinny enough. I didn't have enough of anything. And so what I really started to worship, what became my commitment was finding a way to be enough. Now, the problem with this for anyone who's ever traveled down this path is that the measure by which your worthiness is calculated is really non-existent because it's entirely subjective and based on the authority to which you give that power, which for me was 14 and 15 year old boys. And I became so desperate to be wanted that it was really all I cared about. And I was a straight A student and a good girl and all of the things and tried to live in this fabricated reality of mine until I was about 17. And then I kind of just said, fuck it. I was so miserable and so desperate and so sick of being the good girl that started to act out in just little ways. Maybe I won't read the book for this class. Maybe I won't turn in this assignment. Maybe I will tell people things that I'm doing and actually do opposite things. And it almost became this twisted sense of freedom in learning to lie and manipulate because it was so much easier than admitting how much I was outsourcing my desire to even exist. And, you know, there's so many labels that you can slap onto this experience. You know, we can call it pathology. We can call it depression. We can call it teenage desperation. You can call it whatever you want. But in my introspection and past reflection, all I see it as truly was just this additional attempt for control. And it became stupidly simple to be the rebel, to start drinking, to start experimenting with to start experimenting with just anything I wanted. And, you know, drugs were easy. Drinking was easy. All of these things were so easy because when you hate yourself, 
the way that I hated myself. There's absolutely nothing that fucking matters. And, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this in a way that deeply resonated with me in regards to the fine line between acceptance and nihilism. Because acceptance and faith is this awareness of life as suffering. And I say that because it's inevitable, right? If we wanted to just be in this eternal ecstatic state of bliss all the time, there would be absolutely no reason to incarnate as a human because the very nature of human, the paradox of our existence is of beauty and devastation, of life and death. And I reached that point of the nihilistic view of nothing fucking matters and for the most part internalized it. And so my perspective of the world and people in it being cruel and unfair and inevitably terrible and abandoning was entirely self-inflicted, but also self-absorbed. And now this does not mean that I didn't harm people. During this period of my life, I'm sure that I did. I know that I did because that all-consuming state of nothing fucking matters puts you into this mindset of not just desperation, but certainty as to just the complete lack of any meaning of anything that you do. And so I became so lost, really, that anything that popped up into my sphere of reality that could distract me, that could excite me, that could numb me, was more than welcome. And this was a struggle for a long time. I'd say for about a decade, at least, before any sustainable resolution showed up. Um, And, you know, during that decade from like 17 to 27, I was so angry that I attracted the angriest (laughs) dynamics into my life, the most hateful rage-filled toxicity and it was never my fault of course it couldn't be my fault I was the quintessential victim and I had all these stories that justified these experiences I was a victim because of my childhood which I deemed as abusive I was a victim because of my relationships which I deemed as abusive and Let's pause here for a moment because I am not in any way suggesting that abuse itself does not exist. That is insane. What I'm suggesting and what I know 
based on my experience, which is all I ever speak to, is that had I not been in that place in my life, had I not been embodied in that paradigm, in that mindset that I was in, it's not that abusive things wouldn't have happened. It's that I wouldn't have stayed in them. I wouldn't have repeated patterns. I wouldn't have adopted this identity of the battered woman. And I've considered many times over what what this could actually mean, right? If I abandoned entirely these stories, this past that I have of going down to the depths of hell and clawing, bleeding, screaming, crying my way back up to woman you see and hear here today what does that mean is there glory in bringing yourself up from the depths of hell is there something to be honored in resilience is there this sense of grit and this sense of renewal like a phoenix rising from its own ashes maybe but what i'm realizing in this new season is that the glory is starting to diminish i mean don't get me wrong i will happily freely shamelessly tell these stories because they are my medicine they're the medicine that i have to give to women who are experiencing the same things who believe wholeheartedly that life won't get better that there is no point that there is no hope that they might as well settle for the nice guy who at least doesn't hit them because if he doesn't hit you it's not really abuse You might have to walk on eggshells and make yourself smaller and contort in ways until you look in the mirror one day and have no idea who the fuck is staring back. This is why I know these stories will not just be erased. There's no just starting over from scratch. It's not the point of being human. We don't get over things. We don't forget things. And in healing from them, it's not that they go away at all. It's that we're no longer controlled by the way that we tell the story. We are in control of how the story is told. And so getting back to this perspective that I had adopted of nothing fucking matters. It started to take a physical toll on my body. Now, from a materialist perspective, you can have all your opinions about how it was the bouts and temporary states of controlled starvation or the inflicted self-harm, whether physically with a blade or with a substance or a person. 
But really, it was this God-shaped hole inside of me. And it started to reverberate, reverberate throughout everything I did and said. And if I had had the courage to stare myself in the eye, in a mirror, the way that I can now, there's no way, <laughs> no way that this would have happened then. But if I had had the courage to do it, would I would have seen, would have appeared to be a monster. You know, Shakespeare said that hell is empty and all the devils are here. And I would add to that, that all the devils are within us because the ways in which my life would unfold and the absolute chaos left in the wake of my complete disconnection and disillusionment was hell. It was absolute hell. And I could find people to blame. I could find entities to blame. I could find the curse on my family to blame. I could blame anything, really. Or there's an alternative, right? There's always the option that I didn't want to consider, that I never considered until very recently, which was that the only common denominator in all of these experiences was and is me. So if I'm the common denominator, is it more likely that everything and everyone I encountered was evil and toxic and harmful or abusive? Or is it also possible that I was disconnected and disillusioned and apathetic and hardly human? And I say that because in really experiencing the full breadth of human emotion without feeling that I need to give it story, without feeling that I need it to change, I need it to stop, I need to control it somehow. I see so much beauty in it, but my mind does not like that could not even tolerate it in those moments. And even today will still tell me these stories of whatever it needs to in order to regain control. But your mind isn't the enemy either. My mind wasn't the enemy. I had just honed it as a torture chamber <laughs> rather than a tool for my own healing and expansion. And it wasn't intentional by any means, but the mind was just doing what I told it to. When we think, we are essentially giving direction 
from our mind, our ego, through our body into our spirit of, hey, this is how it is. And if everything that you think about fits within a certain paradigm, so for me, within this paradigm of completely being a victim, everything that your mind encounters is going to be addressed and treated as a threat. And there's a biological imperative to this, right? Anyone familiar with the sympathetic nervous system or just, you know, what we call the fight or flight response in layman's terms is thoroughly aware of how effective this response is. And again, biological imperative, you know, when we evolved with this trait, it was literally a life or death situation. Your mind does not know the difference in sending the signal and switching into this nervous system state between literally being chased by a bear and your life being on the line versus anxiety, what we call anxiety or nerves, this or flight response that gets activated when somebody says the dreaded words to us, we need to talk. Your body is registering that response with an equal amount of importance and instantaneous resolve as it would if you were walking down a path in the forest and a bear was in front of you. And when you're constantly in this state of fight or flight, even though your body is constantly trying to heal you, if you're still alive, your body's trying to heal you. You're making it really fucking difficult (laughs) for the work to be done. And... I've kind of lost my train of thought here, but it just got to a point where I was so defensive because I had trained myself to be, I had trained my mind and my body to constantly be on the defense that I really became the angriest person that I knew. Now, of course, you had said this to me five or six years ago, uh, maybe even three years ago, I would have laughed in your face and said, no, 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 I'm not angry. I just have to deal with all of these angry people. I was so resistant to anger because I was so thoroughly consumed with this fear of experiencing anger that it's all I attracted around me. All I was able to magnetize into my life, all I was a vessel for in this experience was destruction and chaos. I had a brief break from this during my first pregnancy. And 
I didn't really know what to call it. It was just this sense of peace. I didn't have any nausea. I didn't have really any symptoms at all. I woke up one morning and just knew that I was pregnant. And it wasn't in circumstances that I felt could be handled. And I had very little self-awareness, but I had enough self-awareness to recognize that the complete chaos and destruction in which I had called this little soul in was so much more than I could handle. And I knew that on some level, it wouldn't be the end. I didn't have the language or the experience then as a 22-year-old. But I knew that uh, I knew that I could not make the selfish decision of continuing this cycle of chaos with something and someone so innocent. And I chose not to. I chose not to continue that pregnancy to term. I chose to turn things around in a significant way after that. And um, there's so much judgment that I held for myself around this for years. So much that I wouldn't even admit to myself most days that I had had an abortion. I would just convince myself of the lie that I told everyone else that I had miscarried. And my life was so chaotic and I was so untrustworthy um, that most people didn't believe that I was really pregnant at all. And, you know, maybe some part of me started to believe that too, that it was all just this terrible nightmare. And maybe that would have worked had it not happened again a few years later. But this time, I didn't feel that same relief, that same sense of peace. Um, I realize now it's because I was not carrying a daughter, but a son. Because I know that that first baby was a girl. I have seen her in dreams and she's come to me and there's this peace now in that sense but with my second and third pregnancies with my sons there was not that kind of peace there was no acceptance there was um panic and I feel that that panic really physically manifested with how unbearably ill I was during both my pregnancies with my sons and it was really challenging to try to even fathom what it would be like 
to have responsibility for a life in addition to my own. Because even at 25, when my first son was born, I had no semblance of control over my reality. Luckily for him, I chose to birth with a partner at the time who gave me a rooted sense of stability that there was no way that I could have cultivated on my own at that point. And I say this not to reinforce the sense of helplessness and hopelessness that I had, but in honoring that rather than regretting and going back and saying, why the fuck couldn't I get my shit together then? Why did it take until I was 30? Why, 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 why? I mean, I don't really have an answer for that. But the point of acceptance that I have for that was that I wouldn't have a story to tell. I wouldn't have the journey of a traumatic first birth and traumatic first pregnancy and all of those traumatic relationships and all of the fucking chaos. I would have no stories to tell. And that's fine. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with not having the stories. Just like there's nothing wrong with having the stories. There is a differentiation among us for a reason. And so understanding that the chaos and the physical manifestations of such through the illness in my pregnancies and the physical toll that I started to feel on my body, which was really the spiritual toll. Um, But after having my first son, I just felt dead inside. I felt so drained. And it was like, how did I describe it once? I I had a few sessions with an energy practitioner several years ago. And in one of the exercises that he asked me to do, um, I was supposed to write about how I related to other people. And I don't have the letters anymore, but I can remember vividly what I wrote because I talked about how it was like being in a fog. And, you know, a fog isn't impenetrable, even though it seems all-consuming. And people could come in and out of the fog, but whenever they would try to interact with me, I was in this cage. And the door didn't seem locked. But what was so frustrating was that people could come in and out in these interactions. But if I would try to leave this cage in the fog that I was in, I could not open the fucking door. And even in describing this again, I feel... The complete brokenness of that person. I mean, I was very much alive (laughs) materialistically and uh, going to my full-time job every day as a clinical social worker because, you know, those who 
can't heal, fix. And I just went through the motions and my body physically started to take on that toll and my hair was falling out and my skin was terrible and I could not even get up in the morning and do anything without my six shot Starbucks latte. And I really thought that was just going to be my life. But that wasn't even the depth of hell. That wasn't the lowest that I could go. And I thought that that lowest point came at the beginning of 2019 when I chose to start going to a 12-step program because my clear lack of control over using substances and people to change the way I felt was starting to manifest into such chaos in my life that I couldn't live the facade of being a functioning zombie (laughs) anymore. And so I bought into it for a while, you know, and things did get better because the big scary monster suddenly had a name. The big scary monster was addiction. I was an addict. I had no control over this disease of addiction that manipulated me and controlled me into being this jackass. (laughs) And obviously my life got better when I started going to meetings and trying to do step work instead of finding solace in the bottom of a bottle or a bag. But it didn't take long for truth to try to poke through this new facade. And rather than using these evil substances, which were clearly the problem, alcohol and drugs were the problem. Those were the problem. No, I couldn't be the problem. Um, But my relationships just became the chaos and the destruction. And this built up and built up and built up and manifested until I unconsciously or consciously, depending on how you want to judge how life experience unfolds, called in the single most chaotic, destructive, eviscerating relationship of my life. Uh, Ironically, also the relationship in which I conceived my two sons. And I choose my words carefully around this because words do matter. And the way that we tell the story does matter. And, you know, for years, it has been so easy to judge my ex-partner as this villain. And 
in this role that I assigned him, he fulfilled the act perfectly, which happens as we assign actors and these roles in our experience. And it was so easy to blame him for everything wrong in my life. I know that I did. I know that everyone else around me did because it was so easy to pick a time and a place and a person responsible for the chaos, not considering my role in all of this, the fact that, again, I was the only common denominator in all of these experiences. This was inevitably, exclusively for me. And, you know, all of this was unfolding and I was disintegrating. And then 2020 happened. (laughs) And while the entire world was experiencing a dark night of the soul, I unraveled to the point that there was only one thread left. And I remember holding on to that thread with so little care because I knew that if this one was lost, I would be lost. And not in the ethereal, spiritual, emotional, psychological sense that I had been for my existence up until that point, the literal sense of this being the last thread of my humanity. And I had two options at this point. To admit that nothing actually fucking matters. Or to accept that nothing actually fucking matters. And I reached that point of acceptance. And there's something that my amazing, magical, witchy mentor says to me regarding decisions. That when the decision is made, the doing is effortless. And I made that decision to hold on to that last thread and the doing unfolded. It began with the first human design reading that I had on July 11th, 2020. And the next day, the five MEO DMT ceremony. And that week, the conception of my second son leading to the rebirth, which I shared with you on the last episode. But here's the funny thing about the unfolding. I was 
fucking pissed. I got exactly what I asked for. Exactly what I asked for. Which was to find a way to rebuild. To have something more than that single thread which was keeping me anchored to my humanity and I fucking got it but it came so fast <laughs> and so ruthlessly and so cosmically that I didn't want it <laughs> I, I wanted to return my gift from the universe, from spirit, from God, from goddess, whatever you want to call it. I said, take it back. I don't want this. I scheduled an appointment to terminate that pregnancy and I never showed up for it. And I want to say that I had a loving cosmic connection with my baby throughout my pregnancy, which led to the transcendent psychedelic painless glory of birth that I experienced on Easter Sunday. No coincidences. Um, but that's not true. I felt no connection to the life growing within me. Um, I got an ultrasound around 20 weeks because I still wasn't fully convinced that there was even a baby inside of me. It could have been anything. It could have been a bag of money. It could have been an alien. It could have been a unicorn sharding cupcakes out of its ass. It literally could have been anything because that's how disconnected I was from the reality of this rebirth resurrection of my one thread of remaining humanity and during the last you know five years prior to this I had really tried to become a more ethical caring person and so I became a vegan because what could possibly be more ethical and caring than refusing to consume or utilize in any way the flesh or blood or bones or existence of another sentient living thing. Um, that's problematic for reasons that we don't have to get into. The assumption that only animals and humans are sentient beings, um, but I digress. So this uh, cascade of shitstorm that I had created through my abuse of my physical body, through my usage of substances to change the way that I felt, through my careless experiences with using people to change how I felt, my... Uh, absolute disillusionment of joining a cult-like group of uh, virtue signaling in, you know, saving the planet one vegan patty at a time. 
my body was a fucking disaster. Um, my hair was now balding. I had no energy to even stand up, do anything. I couldn't tolerate coffee anymore. Um, so I couldn't even use, you know, caffeine to help me get through the day. And I all but was ready to just drop dead at any given moment. And it really didn't make sense to me why I didn't. Um, I see now that in this interconnected magical sphere of growing life, sustaining life, what I believed was just me, my body sustaining life, that life, that little soul, my little sunshine was sustaining me. It was exactly what I asked for, exactly what I asked for from spirit. And I had to keep making choices, which contradicted everything that I had believed to be true. And this is the key here, right? Because it wasn't truth. It was belief. It was what I believed, me and my fabricated paradigm of chaos. My belief of truth had to be released. So I released this belief of being vegan. I released this belief of being a fixer. I quit my job, quit my career, I quit being a therapist altogether. I um, released this belief of needing to have the man that I believed I was in love with. I moved alone to state 12 hours away where I knew no one when I was 33 weeks pregnant. I released it all. I surrendered it all. And I reached that ultimate point at the other end of the pendulum of recognizing nothing fucking matters. And as I reached this acceptance, it was right before I journeyed through the portal of birth, the single most transformational, transcendent, psychedelic experience of my life, which I was fully able to surrender to because every single other thread was gone. And maybe you expected something else from this story. Maybe you expected the gritty, gory, tragic details of how my first sexual experience was with an online predator or how the first time that I cut myself, I wore long sleeves and even though people noticed, nobody cared or, you know, the times that I drank so much or took so much that I was just sure I was going to die and wrote my own will and sent it out to my closest friends. I mean, yeah, I could tell you about those details, but that doesn't fucking matter. 
it doesn't fucking matter because those bricks that I used to build who I was, I am not carrying into the rebuilding that I am doing now. I have no desire to use the same bricks and build the same house. So I will tell the stories. I will share the experience, but what I am sharing, the whole point of this podcast, the whole point of my work, the whole point of me being who I am is to share the integration piece. I'm not here (laughs) to share the mess. I'm here to share the message. And yes, that is a line from a 12-step program. And no, I don't have to abandon everything that I learned during my time in that experience. Um, Even if I do believe that it is a cult, even if I do believe that it purports victim mentality, it was a necessary step and one that I chose in my expansion and my evolution. I'm here to share the message, not the mess. And that doesn't mean that I can't share my process. I have no problem with other people seeing me falter. I do not want to be pedestaled. I do not see myself as better than anyone else. I just see myself. That's all I want for anyone, for any client that I work with, for any of my friends, for any of my family, for my current children, for my future children. The greatest gift that I've learned, the greatest gift that I've gained, really, is that I can look into a mirror and not be repulsed or terrified by what's there. And, you know, you can call it mirror work. You can call it whatever you want to, you know, whether you utilize energy healing or meditation or yoga or whatever it is that you use that brings you one step closer to home, to yourself use it. Exploit every angle, every story, every caveat, because it's not a linear journey. This is why I have nothing to do in most capacities anyways, with Western paradigms of thought regarding diagnosis, whether that be the physical paradigms of, you know, industrialized medicine, I'm using air quotes that you can't see, or industrialized birth or industrialized psychology, Western psychology and psychiatry, because you are not a diagnosis. You are never a diagnosis. The diagnosis is bullshit. It was created by most likely a white man sitting in a room with other most likely white men having discussions about what things, call them symptoms, they can categorize in order to give somebody a label to put them into a box so that treatment, air quotes again, 
is more streamlined. And they say that this is to give you the best possible treatment to narrow down your symptoms, your experiences of human to something that is neater and more easily addressed. But here's the problem with that. You don't fit into a box because you're not a box. You're a human and your very existence is subjective to your experiences, to your reality. And does that mean that you don't share similarities of some of those experiences with other people? No, of course not. But it is absolutely fucking psychotic to assume that giving two people who even have similar symptoms the same quote-unquote treatment is... First of all, even beneficial to them. But second of all, not entirely bypassing and harmful of their very essential, subjective, individualized lived experience. So if there's a takeaway from uh, this unplanned uh, download today, have it be this. I objectively have journeyed to the depths of hell. And here I am today, not in that hell. So, whatever you want to take away from this story, my story, my lived experience is yours to take. But what it is not is a specific process, a specific protocol, um, an online course, a book and anything, you know, I may create these things, but they're never going to give you a process because your process is something only you know. It's something intimately co-created between you and the quantum field. And it's there. It's present right now. Every single thing that could be or will be or has been or could have been exists all at once and not at all. If this makes no fucking sense to you, that's perfect. Because the first time I heard it, I laughed it off as woo-woo bullshit and carried it about my day doing the things that, you know, got me through. But if you're sick of just surviving, if you're as exhausted physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, as I was and have been. Just believe me. Because one part of you does. Just believe that it's not the full story. Unless you believe that it is. And your story continues to be written by 
the same pen in the same words, the same expression, but it doesn't have to be. And with that, I thank you for giving me your time, your attention, your shared quantum space. And I will see you next time on episode three.